A uh, sad fact is most of these dogs we mentioned are probably dead now. Most, yeah. I mean, especially smaller breeds don't live very long. And I know Ugo died something like 2015, 2016. Uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> sad. But they live forever <laughs> on film. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you live in San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we are going to be reviewing the film Sisu. And for the streaming homework, we're going to be talking about Pamela a Love Story, that is a documentary that Netflix released earlier this year. I also wanted to announce that we have been on TikTok for a little while. We are getting slowly but surely some more views and clips and stuff added on there. Yeah, and who knows how much longer TikTok will be legal. Well, I normally don't actually engage with the app. I just kind of post stuff and then leave. But the other day, I was on our For You page. Mm-hmm. It was giving me all sorts of weird recommendations. I'm guessing based upon somebody who follows us, since I don't really use it. So I'm not sure exactly what was going on there. But it was a bunch of stuff I would rather not be on our For You page. Okay. Mostly like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson clips and stuff like that. Oh, it's it's. I mean, it's probably because... You have us at like it's a podcast thing, so it's like, oh, you right. like podcasts, and those are the you know, those are like the bigger ones. Names, the algorithm is just like podcast equals podcast, right? Yeah, so here's a bunch of nonsense red pill crap, yeah. So I, I figured out how to uh make it to where you would rather not see things <laughs> and then. Two or three hours later, it is now tuned to my exact personality. Yeah. Now you're just going to scroll on it. Now it knows me better than me. Yeah. Now you're going to just sit down and you're going to be like, oh, I'll open up TikTok. And then you'll close it. And it's like, what? A day and a half has passed? What happened? For real, though. Yeah. For real, though. It's addicting. That that was another reason I deleted it. I'm pretty bad with the Instagram reels because – it's basically the same as TikTok. It's just it, it's like two weeks later on all the trends, um, but it's it's not quite as addicting. Uh, also, my Instagram was hacked recently. Yeah, you've been having a rough one online. You've been you were <laughs> booted off of Twitter or, or recently suspended. Yep, and my, my as of this recording, my suspension ends tomorrow morning. <laughs> and then uh now you've been hacked on on mm-hmm. instagram which yeah. probably means you're also hacked on facebook yeah i changed my password for both and like enabled two factor authentication so i i think i'm good um but our friend cade a uh, friend of the show cade 
he sent me a text message. He's like, did you actually post this? That it's like a shitty like Ray-Bans <laughs> two for $24 sale. And I was like, I did not. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I did. I did want to mention at the top of the show that we are now sponsored by Ray-Bans. Oh, so... shit. <laughs> Were you Please. the hacker? Was the call coming from inside the house? Go to your local mall or whatever and uh, buy a pair of Ray-Bans. Use offer code MacGuffinBands. Click this link. Like, subscribe. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> ahead and jump into our first review. That is Sisu, which uh, is still playing in theaters. But it is also available to watch online. You can watch it on Amazon Prime or YouTube if you want to pay twenty dollars and uh, or whatever. Or if it's not playing at your local theater anymore. Especially. Yeah, I think I think it had a pretty limited release anyway, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it has as again as of recording this, it's been out for a couple weeks now, so it might be easier to watch on demand at this point. But um. If you can see it in theaters, uh, you should check it out. We might have a problem. He's a one-man death squad. Do you really believe that he's immortal? No, he just refuses to die. Yeah, so those were the trailers that I was seeing on YouTube in between about every video I would watch. That's what made me initially interested in the project. And before sure. I actually found out that this is a Finnish production, Finnish slash uh, English production, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but this is the same director who did the Christmas horror film Rare Exports, which oh. I believe we talked about uh, as one of our homeworks. Yeah, okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. Now that you say mm. that. So why don't you go ahead and describe what is happening in Sisu? Uh, yeah. So at the end of World War Two, World War Two is coming to a close in, I believe this is set in 1944. This is in Finland. The Nazis are exiting the country as the war, you know, as it's looking increasingly obvious that they are losing the war uh and are are kind of going uh scorched earth on the finnish countryside uh meanwhile there is this old man who is an ex-soldier and has left the war seemingly behind him to pan gold come upon a rich gold mine now has to transport this gold that he's discovered uh, across uh, Nazi-filled Finland um, to to cash in on his big score. And once the Nazis find out he has all this gold, conflict ensues. Yes, and we say the Nazis. Uh, it's not him against an army. It's really him against a three- or four-car uh, convoy. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, carrying... It's some uh, Finnish slave girls that they'd mm-hmm. been moving around. You know, they're kind of headed back to Germany with their tail between their legs. And uh, they happen upon 
this guy and they want this gold because they know if if they're not killed when they get back that they're going to need something to set them up well they i mean this is yeah they know this is their runaway to argentina money you know um this is their yeah. their get out of the country before nuremberg kind of plan so yeah they see this uh, as an opportunity to uh, also escape the war uh it, it's a pretty uh low budget film it's a pretty mm -hmm. small scale movie it's small scale in terms of how much ground it actually covers how much time it takes place in yeah and, uh, and how many characters there are like you said he's he's not taking on an entire uh, Nazi like battalion. It's more just like one squad that he kind of happens upon. Yeah, this takes place during a war, but it's not really a war movie per se. I mean, it is like in the broadest terms possible. Yeah, it's a, it's an but, action movie, and it takes place in the you know nineteen forty four, but it's not like this huge spanning war epic. It's it's pretty yeah. intimate yeah it, it it's essentially plays out like a revenge film between one grizzled badass finnish guy and a group of 12 or so nazis yeah who, uh, spe speaking of that i want to speak to the title of the movie sisu um mm -hmm. which is a finnish word that there's no direct translation for but basically it just means it's this just will of the soul, uh, just pure grit and determination. Especially as things look grim, when you've lost all hope, it's that extra gear you shift into to fight through hopelessness. Yeah. And he, this guy sort of embodies that. And mm -hmm. he's, he has something of a reputation from his, from the wars of World War One. Uh, he has, he's left a trail of, of uh, Russians, uh, dead behind him. <laughs> yeah. They, they refer to him as, uh, Koshe, the, the deathless, which is pretty fucking badass. Um, right. I, I only know about the Koshe legend because of Hellboy, but it, it's like an actual Russian folktale. Right. And there's, there's kind of folkloric elements to this story because this is as far as i know i don't believe this is based on any actual occurrence i don't think um, so it, it feels pretty um it, it feels pretty you know action movie just set in a specific time and place kind of thing yeah sort of a what if scenario it kind of plays out like a western oh um, yeah more it's, so than anything it's 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 like a western it's like a lower budget Western John Wick revenge thing. Yeah, I mean, considering sort of how quiet and intimate scenes sort of start at the beginning when he's panning for gold, mm -hmm. you know, he's sort of this man with no name type figure. He doesn't, he's a man of few words. Um, he has a dog. We're going to talk about movie dogs. Yeah, uh, he's a good boy. It, he has a good boy with him and uh, and a horse. And yeah, I mean, it, it plays very similarly to to sort of a well, Western, you, you could specifically sort of spaghetti Western 
aesthetic. You could absolutely change him to like a San Francisco 49er and have this be have instead of them being these sort of expat Nazis, they could be, you know, like Southerners at the end of the Civil War. Like it, it had it just has that sort of like post-war not Americana, but it's influenced by that storytelling. Yeah, you could see that this director, uh, Jamari Halandria, he, I, I feel like he he took some amount of influence from Tarantino and Inglorious Bastards. You definitely get that with like the title cards and just the way, I would say like the pacing, um, but the way it's shot, a lot of these scenic uh, Finnish vistas. Sergio Leone by way of Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Because um, it's got that sort of postmodern pulp aspect baked in. Yeah. I mean, I think he's interested in integrating similar genre tropes. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's obvious Western stuff. There's obvious World War II stuff. Uh, particularly like smaller mission-based action war mm-hmm. movies. Um, yeah, there's some cool set pieces in this. For being as as kind of low budget as it is, uh, like they, I think it's paced really well, and each segment is really well planned out and choreographed. Yeah, and it ramps up too. I mean, yeah. it starts it starts out pretty small, and you have an idea of kind of what it's going to be, and then by the end of the movie, I mean, he's doing like Mission Impossible stunts. Yeah. So I mean, they use their budget wisely. You can feel it, but not not in a bad way, if that makes sense. Like, like I I kind of liked the lower budget quality of it, if that makes like. Uh, the trailer you said showed said it was like John Wick by way of Mad Max. And it, honestly, you know, we've talked about Tarantino and, and John Ford and stuff. It kind of reminded me of the first Mad Max. Um, the first the first couple. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the other the other influence, I think, that it's interested in introducing is, it, you know, there's the Western thing, which is obvious. Um, there's the action movie thing, which is obvious. And then there's it starts to become an exploitation movie yeah. by the end of the movie when you have, you know, these badass girls with guns and that kind <laughs> of stuff. It's like we we know where we are at that point. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's got this, you know, like post-apocalyptic road movie kind of quality to it that is definitely drawing from that like exploitation, pulpy sensibility. Right, and the revenge aspect mm-hmm. of it, and the brutality of of the uh, revenge. Yeah, it is it is pretty brutal. But uh, I'm not gonna lie i could I could have watched Nazis being mowed down in these brutal ways for another hour. On top of it, though, our our hero of the story he takes quite a beating through most of the movie. I mean, he survives <laughs> most of what's thrown at him. But it is, you know, none too easy to to get from uh, situation to situation. He yeah. it is through a lot of perseverance and uh, <laughs> he does not have Vin Diesel or or Dwayne the Rock Johnson's contract where he can't be seen losing a fight. He he gets 
pretty fucked up. And but I, I think that just adds to I mean, adds to the grittiness of the movie and it adds to that that word, right? That Sisu. Like it doesn't yeah. really mean anything if he's just this Uber badass, but to see him kind of like continually rise to the occasion is part of the fun of this movie. Yeah, and opening in the film when he's just panning for gold, he hasn't even encountered the Nazis yet. And we see him uh, bathing in a creek and he shows us a close-up of his chest and he still has the scars totally, from his yeah. previous skirmishes, you know, that run all the way down his body. Um, and then we see, you know, the the type of actions he takes to gain those kind of scars. <laughs> so, I mean, it is a, you know, a, a collection of revenge set pieces and done really, really well. And, and there's a lot of economy here. This is a 90 minute movie. It's a hot 90. Love don't me. don't get these very often. Love me a 90 minute fucking revenge action thriller where just pump it into my veins. Absolutely. There, and it's also very creative in its action set pieces. There were a couple times where, you know, I've seen a lot of this genre of movie. And there were a couple things where I was just like, oh, oh that's fucking badass. It never it never pulls its punches. No. And and it comes up with with new ways to to throw different challenges to this guy. Mm -hmm. Um. He probably should have died like three or four times in the movie. There's a couple things he walks away from that uh, that I'm like, oh, you would have you would have been liquefied. Yeah, you would have event. been cut in half. Yes, there's there's a yeah. few moments <laughs> that are, but the first one of those moments comes pretty early on to the point where I was, it didn't throw me off if that makes sense. Like I was able to suspend my disbelief enough throughout the movie that I was like, oh, I, I you know, like this isn't going for a realistic war flick. No. It is fully this exploitative, pulpy action. Uh, and I've seen much dumber things in dumber movies. But uh, yeah, there were a few moments where it was like, yeah, no, you'd be dead. Yeah. And on top of that, because he's taking such a beating, and he's bleeding everywhere. And even, you know, mid-fight, hand-to-hand combat, he occasionally just, you know, spits a <laughs> cheek full of blood on the ground and keeps going. So we know that he's always in some sort of, like, physical decay throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that helps lend itself to how uh, heightened some of the action scenes are totally. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like pretty early on, you're like, Oh, okay. This isn't, this isn't saving private Ryan. This is inglorious bastards. Yeah. Or even like the original inglorious bastards that, that uh, Tarantino named his movie after the, the like the original exploitation film. Um, and oh, movies yeah, yeah. of that ilk. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I thought this was a blast. Uh, I, I I mentioned it, at, I think, at the beginning of the review. But, like, if you can see this in theaters, I highly recommend it. Because it's shot gorgeously. And 
there was like a group of, you know, teenagers in front of us that was going expecting like a World War II John Wick and they got a World War II Jan White John Wick. Like it was very fun to like kind of feel people's reactions in the theater. Yeah. Um, if I were to uh criticize the movie at all, um, I know that there's some stuff probably lost in translation, but the dialogue is can be a little stilted, a little clunky, as little of it as there is. It's luckily not very dialogue-driven. Occasionally, there's some anachronistic uh, exchanges. And, you know, nobody's really saying a whole lot here. (laughs) Yeah, this is is a a show-don't-tell type of movie. Like, there's... It's... it's, Other than a couple of characters, it could have almost been a silent movie as far as dialogue goes. And I think it would have been better had it been. Uh, I think if if they had really committed to the idea of like having as little dialogue as possible, or if there must be, you know, have it in its original language with yeah, subtitles. I would say I think that maybe they should have just had the because uh, really it's it's mostly the Germans talking and I think you could have just let them speak German and, and let it but I I also get you know they're trying to mass market it um, and a, a foreign yeah. film a foreign film isn't going to sell the same way um, so I get why they would put it in English but I agree with you I think it, it should have just been German dubbed Yeah, I believe, um, you know, going back to Rare Exports, the Christmas film, Mm -hmm. I believe one of the Nazis, the guy who had his face all melted on one side, he was wearing like the uh, the like leather biker hat. I think he was the kid from Rare Exports, the the main kid, because that was that came out in 2010. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that would make sense. He'd be an adult now (laughs) yeah it'd be like 23 years old or maybe even older yeah i mean everyone's really good in the movie especially you know the physical acting the physical demands on the actors Mm -hmm. uh the the makeup and effects are really good the production value is is really good i like how kind of filthy and lived Mm -hmm. in and desolate everything looks it's very interesting. Like this movie sort of feels like out of time and out of place of 2023. Like you can feel all of the influences that sort of built it, but it mm-hmm. also a lot of those influences are just so specific that it feels like this could have come out in like 1980, you know, eight and not been much different or 1998 and not been much different. And I think that's something that's pretty cool about it. Like it it just, the storytelling is kind of timeless. There's some airplane sequences that I had to have employed some computer generation to be able to, to do what they did on a budget. But given that there was, uh, you know, there's a sequence where somebody falls out of an airplane where I felt it 
because yeah. like the way that the camera goes down with him, I got that flutter in the belly a roller coaster feel. And I haven't had that in a while in a movie. People jumping out of planes like willy-nilly. Yeah, no, that, that's what I mean. Like I, I think there's there's something about the the economics of the storytelling in this movie that that make it feel both like a, a throwback and something very fresh and new. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of a a knuckle dragging beat em up. But oh, given yeah. that But that's you know, what you want out of it. It does that exactly the way it should be done. Yeah. So I'm feeling a A minus B plus on it. Yeah, I I think uh I think A minus is right about where I'm at. I think that sounds sounds good. It, it, like I just had a blast with this movie and will watch again for sure. Yeah, and I believe I don't remember exactly, but I think we were a little mixed on rare exports. A little bit more conflicted with it. Yeah, well, I think again there's Which I a... still think is an interesting movie and worth seeing, but I feel like this definitely like gets to the meat of it and there's a uh, simplicity accomplishes to it. its goals a lot cleaner where yeah where rare exports was um i think maybe a little more ambitious uh yeah this is more streamlined and i think in all the right ways like there's it's a simpler story to tell and so they're able to kind of just go in on every moment uh, versus trying to figure out the world building and the mythology behind it. It's just all of that is there. You know, it doesn't matter. So they can just focus on the kind of the action. And I think in, in really cool ways. Yeah. Um, so that's Sisu. Like we said, uh, catch it in theater if it's still playing. Um, if not, it is available on Amazon Prime for rent. Uh, as well as YouTube and a few other streaming sources. Yeah, uh, but, go see. And it probably see won't be long before it's more affordable, too. Absolutely. Check it out while you can. All right. Uh, let's go on to the segment. And since Sisu features a good boy, a, a, a doggo, mm -hmm. a pupper. Yeah. I wanted to talk about movie dogs. Uh, specifically movie dogs that aren't in like family pet movies. Yeah. Cause it, you know, if you include that, then there's, you know, we're talking Homeward Bound. We're talking 101 Dalmatians. We're talking dogs all over the place. We're talking hotels for dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm more interested in dogs that are featured as characters in movies, you know, that aren't, that aren't about dogs. Yeah. That aren't specifically about the dog, but uh, memorable movie dogs. Uh, we did get one response um, to a prompt in Instagram. Chantel, you know, from the, the question I asked, what's your favorite movie dog? Uh, and she says, does Doug from Up count? Yes, he does. Yeah, I would say he counts. He's, the, the movie is not about Doug and he is a he is a good boy. Uh, I mean, he's you know it's a cartoon, but mm -hmm. um, they you know he's he's not uh, 
anthropomorphic dog. He's played as dog. Right. And he's a big part of that movie. And, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and who doesn't think memorable. of Squirrel? Squirrel is very, you know, it's very memorable. He was yeah. on my list. Yeah, I have I have a pretty decent sized list here. We're each gonna name three, of course, but uh, you know we'll we'll talk about our others. So, what is your first movie dog? Oh, okay, I get to go first. Um, there again, there's so many good ones. I'll go with one that we talked about very recently on the podcast uh, in Prey. Uh, I don't believe the dog had a name, unless I'm mistaken. Um, yes, it does, because that was on my short list. Uh, the dog's name was Sari. S-A-R-I-I. Oh, I wonder if that was a, a native, like a Native American word. Um, uh, I'm but sure yes. it was. So, uh, yeah. Prey, which uh, you can go back and listen to our review of, uh, is uh, you know, about uh, a Native American hunter who encounters a, a predator, an alien uh, predator from the Predator franchise, uh, and she, you know, doesn't have advanced technology or weapons. She is, is has to, you know, battle this thing with like bow and arrow and and that sort of weaponry and. Uh, she has a hunting dog companion um, that it, I feel like the reason the dog stood out in Prey was because it's I think it's very easy, especially in that movie where we kind of talked about how some of the animals were digital, like the bear and the, there was like a mountain lion. Um, yeah, I think, you know, this dog stood out because it was just a very well-trained stunt dog. Um, you know, it was a good actor dog and uh, added, I think, a lot to the story. Yeah. Got the character out of some sticky situations and uh, knew exactly when to show up and also didn't turn everything too syrupy or too um, sentimental. Yeah. The dog wasn't used as like a, a a sort of manipulative tactic of storytelling, which sometimes I think, you know, animals are introduced solely just to like tug at people's heartstrings. Right. Or to build a bridge from adult content to something a little bit more four quadrant. Yeah. 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 That is a that is a good doggo. Mm hmm. OK. Uh I'm going to go with a movie I just recently rewatched. Well, we, we rewatched it, uh, actually, during our uh, Halloween season. Oh. And that mm -hmm. is uh, Beast from The Hills Have Eyes. Well, there were there were two dogs in that movie, right? There Wasn't there a Beauty and the Beast? There was a Beauty and the Beast. Beauty did not make it very long into the movie. Yeah. Um, but Beast comes in clutch quite a few times in that movie. And uh, I think at, by the end of it, it has a bigger body count than any <laughs> of the humans, or any of the heroes anyway. I think so. Has. Yeah. <laughs> like that dog saves their fucking asses a lot. <laughs> yeah. Big, big, mean German shepherd uh, who 
is luckily on the right side and is very well trained. And if you've watched the uh, special features, Michael Berriman uh, talks about his attack scenes with the dog and how, you know, that speaking of low budget, that movie, I don't even know if it was made for a million. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the only thing that was between his neck and that the, the jaws of that German shepherd was just a, a piece of leather. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's scary. And they, they, the dog handler, like, basically let him go to town on Michael Berryman. <laughs> and in the, the, that was the 70s, right? Like, that's. Yeah, 77. Yeah. 70s, low budget. Like, that's. You gotta, you gotta have a lot of faith in that dog trainer and that piece of leather. Cause damn. <laughs> and that dog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it uh, makes the movie all the much better that the uh, the family that is brutalized throughout mm-hmm. the film has a good boy there on their side. Well, I think also in in terms of, you know, the sort of slasher horror genre that makes that movie stand out a little bit more as well, too. Right. Because it it, mm-hmm. it again kind of gives it this sense of time and place and. You know, I think it makes it feel more like a family vacation that they have these dogs involved and uh, just that they have this resource that you don't normally see the the victim side have in this type of horror scenario. Um, I I think adds an interesting element to that movie for sure. All right. What is your second movie, Doug? My second movie dog, I will pick, uh, you know what? We picked a couple adult movies. I will pick one that is, a, you know, a children's movie, a family movie. Uh, the Sandlot, another dog oh. uh, referred to as The Beast. Um, yes. Uh, it, it is the stuff of legend that where, you know, these this group of kids knocks a ball into the uh, a famous, was it signed by Babe Ruth? into the backyard of their neighbor, but they're afraid to get it because, you know, the le- the neighborhood legend is of this beast that swallows balls whole. And, you know, by the end of the movie, we realize he's just a, a kind of an old good boy himself. Uh, but just, I, I think the mythos behind it, it, like, I still remember as a kid, like, that, like, giant, dog puppet that you don't really get to see but you kind of see like behind the planks of the fences it was very uh kind of scary as a kid but um that just like again leads into the legend behind this dog right yeah a big uh rottweiler or something like that. yeah i i think it's um i think it's a saint bernard isn't it like um oh i think you might be right yeah but a, a a big dog yeah yeah, that's a good one. And you, you get this fantastic chase scene mm-hmm. between the dog and uh, one of the main characters who runs all across town through a uh, a picnic table, through <laughs> a movie screen at a theater while they're showing The Wolfman. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, was it Wipeout? I, I man, it's been it's so long since something I've seen like this movie. That. Some like '60s surf thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That that's a good one. And 
you know, kind of an interesting structure for uh, a movie like that because uh, after after Stand by Me, mm-hmm. there we started to see a bunch of these nostalgia kid movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, My Girl and Now and Then and uh, and then uh, The Sandlot. Um, and it starts out, you know, like this whole thing about them, like learning how to play ball and this new kid in town, blah, blah, blah. And we get the story of the beast while they're having fun um, in their treehouse. And then later that whole uh, debacle with them trying to get the ball back ends up dominating the second half of the movie. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's, yeah, it, but it's, it, it doesn't really feel like that's what the movie's about until the movie's about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's integrated in a way that is really smart and, and really well done. Um, but yeah, that's a good pick. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with, I think this is like one of the quintessential movie dogs of the last X amount of years. Uh, and that is Milo from the mask. Yeah. A very good dog acting, very well trained. Well, there was, a, there was a period of time where that, I don't know if it's that breed. Um, uh, was it, is he a Jack Russell terrier? I think, um, but he's not a Jack Russell because he's short haired, but He's a terrier, a very similar breed to the to the Jack Russell, which which is, dominates Hollywood like that. Yeah, that, yeah they're the go to movie dog because they're they're easy to train and they're small and, enough that I think, you know, it's they they probably just don't require the same amount of resources as as like a, you know, St. Bernard or something. Um, mm-hmm. they're probably just a little easier to take care of on set. And yeah, they're very smart. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of great scenes with Milo in, in a movie that is not about a dog at all. No. Um, and it would almost feel like kind of a hat on a hat to involve dog antics in a movie that already involves magic masks. And Jim Carrey antics. And right, exactly. Um, but you know, that movie's very well balanced at uh, its tone and at the mm-hmm. style of comedy it's going for. There's all the references back to uh early animation and and that kind of stuff. So as well as uh, yeah, I believe it's based on a Dark Horse comic book, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think pretty loosely, but yeah. Uh, and I know that by Mask 2, Son of the Mask, there's a lot more dog stuff going on and babies. And yeah. And, and they, well, they, Kennedy. <laughs> well, they, yeah. By Mask 2, it's really broadening the the whole, like, let's make this a family thing. Whereas right. the, the first one is just kind of this action comedy Jim Carrey vehicle. The, the second one is like, let's go full schmaltz yeah yeah that is correct and and uh that's the fear of adding something like that to a Mm -hmm. movie um like the mask but no very well-trained dog very funny 
very well placed in the scenes in the movie. Um, and you kind of buy it no matter how ridiculous, you know, like the dog helps him escape from jail and everything, but it's, it's played for comedy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, and, I and we mean, even get to at some point see the dog with the titular mask on and become this sort of cartoon character. Yeah. yeah. Like fleshman cartoon, like fully deranged cartoon dog, which is pretty fun. That might be tipping it a bit too far, but, but otherwise, yes, I, it's a, it's a short moment in a otherwise very cartoony movie. Yeah. Milo. I think somebody had to say it and that somebody was me. Yeah. Uh, okay, speaking of, of somebody's got to say it, uh, my number one movie dog, I think, might be the number one movie doggo of all time. We couldn't do this list without mentioning Toto from The Wizard of Oz, the ultimate doggo sidekick. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'll get you and your little dog, too. Toto's there for the whole adventure. The movie's not about Toto. But we all know Toto's name. You, you know, there, there is it is a generational thing. Yeah, plays pretty heavily into how Dorothy gets involved in the story because mm-hmm. um, the mean neighbor lady tries to steal the dog and then she has to get the dog back. And then that's how she ends up. In Oz, whatever. Well, and at a point, Toto is, you know, like her only connection back to home. Um, Mm. uh, Just plays very heavily into the story without the story story being directly about Toto. Right, and also very well trained. And I mean, Uh, whenever you see any, what is that? A a Scotty, a Scottish, Scottish terrier, something like that. Whenever you see one, it it at least everyone of a certain age calls them Toto dogs. Yeah, absolutely. And and Toto is just as much a character in that movie as the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and Dorothy. You know, he he's there for the whole ride. All right. Uh, my last pick here, uh, my last official pick, is going to be... Uh, Brandy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I, uh, th- this was almost my last pick. <laughs> not a huge part of the movie. It's not, um, she's not in it very much, but she leaves an impact mm-hmm. and comes in handy when needed. And, uh, you know, a very scary looking dog, but also looks like a big lover. This movie portrays her very well right because she's very smart she's very sweet very loyal but when the shit hits the fan cliff can definitely count on her yes and uh there's cleverly integrated into the story uh kind of like we were talking about with the um the sandlot but in a very different way <laughs> um you know we get this scene where Cliff comes home at the beginning of the movie. Cliff comes home from hanging out with Rick Dalton. And he lives in this small trailer and he's preparing his mac and cheese. Uh, And it's this whole like slow montage edited thing of him, you know, preparing the food while he's dumping the canned 
dog food in the bowl and and then he uh uh signals to Brandy when she's allowed to eat and she goes for the bowl. And it's just this thing, it's like well, we spent a whole lot of time on that. Yeah. Um and it just seemed like it just feels like a character purpose, thing. Yeah, it just seems like the purpose of it is to show that this the routine of his day or something mm-hmm. like that. And then it comes back when you least expect it. Chekhov's gun. When you see yeah. a, a, when you see when he introduces a a gun in the first act, you know at some point the gun has to go off in the third act. Right. So we, we Chekhov's dog. Yeah. And, I mean, it, probably one of the newer entries in this list. Well, Prey, the dog from Prey was a little f- few years later, but. But yeah, what uh, didn't make it on your list? Oh my god, so many. Um, I'm just going to rattle them off. Um, Go for it. Uh, I Am Legend, um, a very good good dog. John Wick, there's a bunch of dogs in the John Wick franchise. Um, you know, the one that is sort of the inciting incident, and then he picks up some friend doggos on the way. Uh, Zero from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, a, a fun okay. dog sidekick, um, Einstein from Back to the Future. Oh, uh, that's a good dog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the weird dog spirit animal thing from Coco. Um, the there's a dog in Mad Max. Uh, kind of plays similarly to the dog from Sisu, but uh, maybe a little more tragically. Uh, and the the Fraser dog from The Artist. Yes, Ugo. It was on my list. Is that um, the dog? I couldn't remember the dog's name. I, I It's been so long since I've seen that movie. I just remember the cute little dog. Right. Uh, that's the dog's, the actual, the actor's name. The actor dog's name. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the character. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I don't know if it was the same dog, like literally the same one. But it, uh, that dog had, had gotten a lot of work. I yeah, think, I, I think it was just the same breed. I don't think it was actually the same dog from uh, Fraser right, because a sure. uh, sad fact is most of these dogs we mentioned are probably dead now. Most, yeah. I mean, especially smaller breeds don't live very long. And I know Ugo died something like 2015, 2016. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> sad. <laughs> but they live forever <laughs> on film. Yes, they do. Um. I don't have as many on here, especially ones we didn't already mention. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned Sorry from Prey and uh, and Ugo from The Artist. So the only one that what didn't end up on my list is Fleet from the Italian film Umberto D, directed by Vittorio De Sica, the guy who did uh, Bicycle Thieves. Oh, okay. um, it's about a homeless guy who is losing his apartment or is about to lose his apartment. And he, it's video to Sika, So he's losing everything. <laughs> um, and uh, all he has is his, his dog. That, oh, he, that sounds uh, depressing. It is, but it's a very good movie dog. Uh, <laughs> dogs, one of, you know, dogs and kids, the, the things that you want to work with the least as a director, but I mean, there's there's whole websites dedicated to does the dog die in this movie. So uh, I think sometimes it's easier as an audience for us to connect with a dog than it is a person. 
Okay, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the streaming homework, which I assigned us. And that is the Netflix documentary, Pamela, A Love Story, about the model and actress, Pamela Anderson. I didn't sleep last night at all. If anybody's watching this, go to hell. I blocked that stolen tape out of my life in order to survive. And now that it's all coming up again, I feel sick. I want to take control of the narrative for the first time. I don't think people consider her the owner of her own image. It's Pamela Anderson, public property. I didn't feel like I had a lot of respect. Did you want to be a serious actress? I am a serious actress. (laughs) I had to make a career out of the pieces left but I'm not the damsel in distress. I put myself in crazy situations and (laughs) survived them. So I saw them uh, promoting this on the front page of Netflix, and I did not watch the uh, Hulu series that came out, what, two years ago now? Was it that? I don't think it was that long. I think it was last year, right? This movie talks specifically about that. It's a biographic documentary, so it goes through the major events of her life. She's actually archived a lot of it. We kn- mm-hmm. we all know of the famous tape, but she has videoed pretty much everything from the moment she from times when she was. Uh, still a teenager, all the way down to recent years, including this documentary, uh, journaling, and she's been doing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, video logs, and she's been keeping record of everything. Um, well, she she would be, you know, of the one of the first generations where video recording was readily accessible to to just everybody you know so she has all these logs of videos and family videos and like you said a a diary that she reads from uh where she was chronicling everything that was going on in her life from you know from being a canadian small town girl to going and becoming a, a playboy playmate and then becoming a, a huge superstar actress. Correct. And, you know, uh, including her work on Baywatch and including her many suitors. She got married more than I even knew. And, and I knew she had at least four or so, like, pretty uh, well-publicized uh, husbands, most notably Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. But there were a you know, a handful before that and a handful after that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, during the making of this documentary, she goes through the the beginning stages and the non-celebrity marriage. Uh, somebody she met during uh, the, the time spent when she was in Canada taking care of her elderly parents, mm-hmm. which uh, it's an interesting documentary because... As people are sort of chronicling her life as they know it as the tabloid event, 
mm-hmm. uh, specifically with the Hulu series. She was a, a victim of, you know, the advancements of different technologies from VHS from her VHS to being stolen to the advent of the Internet, um, which was used to sell her tape and was a, a forebearer for what would become this sort of celebrity like reality status. Right. As well as a precedent in the legal recourse of uh, online privacy and Mm -hmm. sextortion and, you know, things that didn't exist at that time. So she was sort of put at the forefront of, of these mediums as they were developing. And she had to, you know, get hit with the full brunt of the lack of legislation to do anything about it, as well as a lack of societal interest in protecting women, broadly Mm -hmm. speaking, but women who work in the sex industry or, you know, models and celebrities who are worshipped largely because of their body or, or there's this, you know, built in misogyny to her story uh, because one of the things that made her famous was her, her, her image, her body, her figure, and was, um, being featured on Playboy, you know, multiple occasions. So she had, her her body had been displayed publicly before, and because of that, uh, people felt ownership of it. Yeah, even though yeah. you know, in even though when private material was stolen from her, uh, that was not meant for public consumption. There, there was this attitude. Um, especially legally of like, well, you've already shown all of this. So kind of who cares, but her private honeymoon tape is very different than a contract. She signed to do a consensual photo shoot. Absolutely. And also we also, we see the, the difference in how she was treated and what that did for her career, as opposed to Tommy Lee, mm-hmm. who was able to, you know, walk right away from that and then go straight into touring and releasing more records and being able to spin it as a positive for him. I mean, it is, you know, it's like a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't at the same time. Like it's, um, you know, conversations are about this stuff were barely getting off the ground, especially in terms of Playboy models and what what they would do outside of that industry. Well, and, and she's and, one of the first to really mm-hmm. go from that to being able to parlay that into a television career, and then going into acting and later theater, and and, well, and wanting to do more than than just that and also you know in the background of all of this is is her want to uh you know as you mentioned she has been married several times but you know there's this sense of her want of this family stability and wanting to raise a family with tommy lee and to have kids and how that privacy invasion um, you know, didn't just impact her career. It didn't just impact her, the the culture of the time, but it impacted her her private life as well. And 
could some of the deterioration of their marriage be blamed on this? I think so. Um, you know, they did only know each other for four days before being married, but there is this sense that they were genuinely in love. And uh, this it just sort of feels like all of this other outside pressure uh, on top of that um, just was kind of a setup for failure. We get a lot of different insights into her marriage and marriages and her relationship with her children and her relationship to celebrity through these very candid interviews and diary entries. Um, and she told, you know, the documentarians they're allowed to use whatever they want. You know, she didn't want to have much say in what was used and what isn't in terms of the material she let them go from mm -hmm. um, because she didn't want to seem too guarded uh, or to, to have, uh, you know, that sort of pressure to, to self editorialize. Um, so it's a very interesting documentary. And I remember, I remember, I don't know, a handful of years ago, I came across her Twitter profile Mm -hmm. And she was tweeting some bangers and she's, you know, I think people who aren't all that aware of her, they just think of her as like tool time or Baywatch or whatever, mm -hmm. probably just assume she's this big blonde bimbo or whatever and doesn't, but she's actually smart as a whip. Well, especially later in her career, you know, they talk about a lot of the activism she's done as far as yeah. like animal rights activism. And yeah, I, and uh, also this kind of a resurgence in an acting career where uh, she recently played um, Roxy in Chicago on Broadway. And, you know, I, I think there is this if you know her just as sort of the pop culture figure, it's very easy to kind of, I think, underestimate her and underestimate what she went through because it just seems like, well, you were one of the most famous people alive at one point. You're, you know, you, you were one of the biggest celebrities to exist in the eighties and nineties there. I think it's very easy to write that off as well. You kind of asked for all of this, but she seems well, it, the image that the media was interested in was had nothing to do with her insights or her knowledge or her passions. They mm -hmm. really just wanted to talk about her, the most salacious things about her career and her, you know, specifically her like plastic surgery and who she's mm -hmm. married to at the time. And so she never really got to. Really well, she, show she, herself completely to her, the public. In the 90s, she kind of had to lean into this image of her because that's where the work was, right? You know, that's that's what her celebrity star sort of was at the time. Um, so she, you know, she didn't really get her acting opportunities kind of started and ended with Baywatch, really. I mean... Her, her one sort of chance in a movie was so wrought with all of this other shit going on around it. And, you know, it was just kind of a sexploitation flick anyway. Um, in some ways, 
she didn't get the opportunity she probably deserved. Yeah, I I mean, I agree. And, um, you know, I'm interested to hear, you know, your perspective on the documentary, having seen Mm -hmm. the the uh, Hulu television show that kind of plays a lot of this for comedy. At least that's how it's portrayed in the in the documentary, um, which is, you know, she she's very forthright about not wanting the show. Mm-hmm. to happen to not bring back all of this stuff again it's sort of well it's yeah it's triggering very painful and, memories for her from a painful time in her life where you know she had an invasion of privacy that almost no one else can understand on that level you know like mm-hmm. like e- even some of the sex tapes and sex scandals that that happened after her just the how big of an exposure it was of of uh, her private life i i don't think we can pro- even properly fathom it's truly insane so i i completely understand why she wouldn't want to relive that or, or you know and i think there's something kind of weird about a a Hulu series that's about this invasion of privacy that is done without the consent of the person whose life it's dramatizing. I'll kind of just leave that at that. Um, However, I having seen both this documentary and the Hulu series, I think it's kind of a shame that she hasn't watched it because I actually think ultimately the show is on their side like it never the comedy doesn't come from their victimization i wouldn't even necessarily refer to it as totally a comedy like i would you know i'd say it's kind of a dramatic comedy like there's definitely a lot of humor in it um but it it doesn't play really anything with pam and tommy off for laughs in fact i would say I thought the Hulu series was pretty empathetic to them and and made them seem pretty victimized. I would say it was maybe a little harsher on Tommy Lee um, because it it does sort of make the whole thing seem like it was Tommy Lee's fault um, for being a dick to his contractors. So some of that I can see, um, but especially Pamela, like I feel like it's pretty empathetic towards her and and the at the end of it i felt similarly that i did at the end of this documentary which was that societally we fucking did them dirty i mean there's a common theme in a lot of the the uh the most scandalous mm-hmm. stories of the 90s whether we're talking about the Pamela and Tommy tape, or we're talking about Monica Lewinsky, or we're talking about Tanya Harding and uh, the other ice skater, Nancy Kerrigan, Mm -hmm. Um, or even OJ. Um, Like all of those pre-reality TV entertainment news scandal stuff was all pretty misogynistic. It's very misogynistic. It was very sensationalized. It was very, um, yeah. I mean, it, it, if you look at the way that stuff was covered at the time, it's, it is when people refer to the patriarchy, like that is what we're talking about. Like it is 
those systems in play to to protect men through these narratives and to to paint the women at fault for being too promiscuous or being too emotional or being too whatever. Yeah, or or even at the very least, you know, playing it as tragedy on one side of their mouth and then sort of laughing at it in the other side. In the documentary, in the, the movie we watch, you know, there's these clips of these, you know, late night hosts and sort of talking to Pamela and then, you know, about what happened. And then the next joke is a crack about her breasts or whatever. Right, exactly. And again, it's like not that long ago. It feels like a lifetime and is a lifetime for a lot of people now. But it, it's uh, well within my memory. Yeah. And I remember when the Pamela tape leaked, like I was still a little too young to, you know, I wasn't one of the people like scouring the Internet to buy a copy of the tape or whatever. But I knew what was going on. Like I. I, Yeah, there was no way not to know. Yeah. I mean, it was it was on every tabloid. It was on every like weekend update. It was. Uh, or every, you know, um, 2020 dateline, mm-hmm. it was everywhere. And then covered again on VH1 with the, uh, Motley Crue story. So yeah, there was, you knew what was going on in the same way that you knew of like the Princess Diana story or whatever. Yeah. But I think what's, you know, the, the theme of this documentary and what makes it strong is this idea of her taking ownership of her story. Yeah. And and choosing what to, you know, at a, in a later period of her life, choosing to move past it and try something new. Mm-hmm. And not letting that keep defeat her. Taking a risk on a career choice that wasn't the obvious thing to do. And I think that 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 plays really well. I I, I was really compelled by most of the documentary. I agree. Um, I I think it's um, I I think it's nice to actually hear everything, you know, from her, from her perspective, from her point of view. Like I said, I, I do think the Hulu series is largely, you know, is very empathetic to the point where I I do think it's almost a shame that she hasn't seen it, but it is also a different thing to see this sort of dramatized, you know, comedic take on something versus hearing it from the person who lived it. Right. Exactly. And, you know, like the feelings that she was going through while it was happening is not something, not a place she wants to be anymore. Yeah. Whether or not the, the show is quote unquote on her side or looking at it from a less misogynistic lens, it's still something she'd rather not relive. Sure. Which, yeah, um, absolutely understandable. And she'd rather not have other people talking about yet again, especially this far on. I mean, mm-hmm. her kids are fully grown. Yeah. We get a lot of, we get a lot of, uh, a lot of them in the movie, which is really interesting. Yes, but I mean, they look so much like Tommy Lee, too. Like, it's it's kind yeah. of weird. I'm sure. And, you know, we, we I don't know if this was sort of a 
narrativization kind of thing to that was sort of embellished for the sake of the documentary, or if this was truly some inner turmoil that she was going through. But there's this whole idea that, like, Tommy was the love of her wife, and it was kind of the one that got away. And even though she chose to keep her family safe from somebody who was abusive and 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 an alcoholic, um, that was something she never could really move past. Mm-hmm. And then you look at her kids, and you're like, well, yeah, you I mean, like, you see them, you see him in them your whole life. Oh, you yeah. Can only imagine. I, I mean, yeah, I think, especially when you have kids with somebody, you know, like when, you know, even though she's, however many times she's been married, like that, that still leaves its, its hooks in you, you know, like it, it, nobody marries somebody, the idea that like this isn't going to be forever. Um, you know, I know divorce is a thing, but like it's, it, I, I doubt it's something most people go into lightly and just because she kind of, you know, it seems like she can get very swept away by love. It doesn't mean that those loves haven't impacted her. Again, I don't know if that was something that they, I don't want to say made up because that doesn't sound right to me, but editorialized. Editorialized, yeah, they kind of like angled it in a little bit more, uh, or to create a stronger arc. Or if, uh, you know, that's something she definitely wanted it to, uh, to be a part of the documentary. But, you know, what is very clear, especially given the, uh, many abuses of her childhood and moving forward, is that she is definitely a love addict. Sure. And, yeah. you know, many people are well aware of drug and alcohol addiction or, or, or porn or sex addiction. But there is there is like a, a psychological love addiction that you can attend meetings for. And there are people who who they attach mm-hmm. um, very quickly and they become very vulnerable around new people in their lives. And they have severe uh, codependency problems because of it. Um, and they, they become addicted to that feeling of feeling in love or being in love. And it's, it's pretty clear that she is a love addict. Um, and I don't know if she's ever addressed that in a professional manner. I'm, you know, I'm, she probably has in her 50 plus years of life, but it's um, something that's kind of a subtext of the story that we, that is never uh, said outright, but doesn't need to be either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She just, again, as a pop cultural figure, I think she is such an interesting person because she was just at like this crossroads uh, to being that person at sort of the worst possible point that that you could experience a thing like that through. And I I guess I would hope that I don't know. I, now I'm editorializing, but um, I just think she's 
just where she is at as a, a pop cultural figure is very interesting. And I very much appreciate that she at least finally has this way to tell her story herself, given this piece now uh, that she unfortunately didn't get at the time. This is also, you know, on top of a great story about Pamela and her life and her experiences, it's also sort of a biography of a decade or mm -hmm. of a specific point of time. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind uh, of a time capsule of a, of a movie. Yeah, I was hoping that Borat would come up and unfortunately it did not. But uh, other than that, I, I give it a... Uh, I give it a lot of praise. I think this is a, a very compelling, interesting documentary. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And that's going to be the episode. What did you have for our next episode for the streaming homework and where can people stream it? For the next episode, we are going to be watching the, uh, I believe it's from 1981, uh, fantasy epic Dragon Slayer, um, known for its dragon effects at the time it's creature effects uh which we are going to be watching uh it's currently available on pluto tv um or in my area with my with the san diego library it's available on canopy um uh, we talked about that a little bit more last episode but if you have access to um public library check canopy to see if it's available streaming or you can watch it with ads on pluto tv okay and if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us long form at our uh, email address, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, uh, TikTok, and uh, soon to be on YouTube. We're going to start chopping up these episodes into review clips and segments if I can ever carve out extra editing time. All of which we is searchable under MacGuffin Pod. Please leave us a a one sentence review and a five star rating on iTunes or uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever podcast app you use. Uh, you can follow me individually at BC Cassidy at Twitter and Instagram, and you can read my reviews that I do every now and then for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or our Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. Um, and be sure to go to the uh, MacGuffin landing site, MacGuff.in, to read articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Once my account is unlocked and I'm not being hacked, uh, and you can, if you're interested in seeing me perform live, uh, you can check me out performing at Improv vs. Stand-Up at Mockingbird Improv uh, here in San Diego. And that is the episode. This isn't about who's the strongest. This is about not giving up. We have a word for that in Finland. Bye.